You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, a longtime MMA journalist, novelist, and podcaster. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. It's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how's it going this week? I feel like you should start every week maybe just adding like one more descriptor to your title. You think? Yeah. You know what I like most about it is how bad it needles you. Maybe. I can see it on your face. Father. The personal struggle. Motivator. That you go with trying to just even wrap your brain around the change aspect of it. man? Yes, man. Uh, Toady. It's just, well, come on. We all know who the toady here is. Let's be real. Uh, perhaps delusional, uh, self-important. You know what? I we don't need to get too. We want to keep some stuff as a surprise, but I just just play with it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. One extra descriptor. Rightful king of France. Something like that. I'm gonna keep changing it because I know how much you love it. Please do. Ben, a funny thing happened uh, this week on the way to, what is it, episode 338 of the Co-Main Event Podcast? Sure, let's say that. We were getting ready to have our discussion about the UFC's debut on ESPN. I was going through the listener mail. Mm -hmm. We got a lot of listener mail, as usual, about the main event, Henry Cejudo against CJ Dillashaw. We got a lot about the uh, uh, debut of Greg Hardy. We got a lot about Donald Cerrone. We didn't get a ton of mail about some other topics that I know we wanted to get into. So I put out a call on social media. I was like, hey, ask us some questions that aren't about those people and we'll probably answer them. The people showed up. The co-maniacs showed up in force and just sent what I believe the technical term is a farmer's grip of emails into the podcast. So as a result... We're going to go all questions considered today on the podcast. However, with a focus on UFC on ESPN Plus One. Question. Would you describe this batch of email, listener mail questions as an embarrassment of riches? It is. It's an unbelievable embarrassment of riches. It's a treasure trove of listener mail. Wow. I'm excited. Are you ready? Yeah. Let's before we go on. People should not forget that this Friday is the No Country for Old Men book club over on the Co-Main Event Podcast. So you got a few days left to get your responses in before we go buck wild on Cormac McCarthy's. No Ain't Country nobody going to forget Old that. Men. People have it circled on the calendar. All right, we're going to start here from Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Oh, nice! They teamed up for a question. Yeah, just okay. like they teamed up for A Star Is Born. Yes, current sensational I've, film that's out there. I've heard that that is a film that exists. Don't act like you've seen a new movie. I have movie. not seen it. It's one of those. It's it's one of those things that everyone says is good, and I can't imagine how it could possibly be good. Okay, I mean, are you going to see it? No. I mean, probably not unless it like comes up on my television screen at some point and I don't have the the gusto or drive to get up and find a remote control. Then I might watch a few minutes just of it. Just picturing you just unmoored 
floating kind of through your living room. Somehow you're watching the television and the star is born begins. Okay. The star is born tandem, right? The homie Hank Cejudo out here vaporizing greats like it didn't take us eight years to find someone capable of such treachery. But all Dana wants to talk about is how it was a bad stoppage and TJ got hosed. Is this a shallow view of what the UFC has on its hands with Hank? Maybe it's time to let the old ways die and find someone new to do the talking for the UFC before this ESPN deal gets too far along. Dana's one event into his new era and his out of placeness is connecting the two and that his out of placeness in connecting the two brands is astounding. So Ben, we talked about this on the power hour last Friday, but for much of last week, Henry Cejudo was doing everything he possibly could to try to sell this fight with TJ Dillashaw, including, but not limited to showing up in a sparkly gold blazer that made him look like a backup dancer for the temptations check wearing his gold medal around his neck, like uh, Kurt Angle check uh, whipping a plastic slash rubber snake out of a bag and, doing a snake charmer, like pretending it was real, whipping it against the floor. Lots of stuff. Henry Saluto was pulling out all the stops. Yeah, and tried to lend some actual clear stakes to the fight by trying to get Dana White to agree, hey, if I win, you keep the division around. If I don't, then you can do what you want. And Dana White just obstinately refusing to tell people what is at stake in this fight. Yeah, he, uh, Henry Saluto pulled out all the stops, but... As an addendum to that, we also mentioned that maybe he seemed like a slightly flawed messenger in some ways, like maybe didn't have the innate charisma to pull it all off. I mean, he did a lot of good things. He did some things like the snake that didn't necessarily come off in a positive way. But then was, that, go- a, was that a purposeful play on his nickname? there, The messenger. The messenger? Yeah. It's okay. ironic. Don't you think no, the flawed that messenger? Not, that is not irony. He goes out there on Saturday night and beats TJ Dillashaw in 32 seconds. Just pretty much storms him with punches, knocks him down a couple times. Referee Kevin McDonald steps in to call things off. First, I guess I will ask you, what about the stoppage? What did you think about the stoppage? I thought the stoppage was a little quick. Yeah. But not indefensible. You know, I can understand why TJ Dillashaw would be upset with it because he he was, you know, rolling in and, and looking for a single leg there when it got stopped. But we've all seen how this goes. You get knocked down you know you get he got hit behind the ear and kind of went face down on the canvas for a second and then after that gets his head knocked around some more and you can't be too surprised that the referee is standing there thinking about stepping in there i i do think you know you could let that one go a few more seconds and it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world but it's also not the worst stoppage we've ever seen and to this question i i did think that it felt like dana white in particular Kind of missing the point yeah. after that. It, does TJ Dillashaw feel like Dana White's guy? Kind of, in some ways, because you'll remember uh, one of the things that got the UFC crosswise with Demetrius Johnson in the first place, at least according to the account written by Demetrius Johnson, was that he felt like the UFC and Dana White in specific tried to force him or pressure him into this fight with TJ Dillashaw. And one of the things they said to him was, like, TJ deserves this or yes, something like yeah. that. They basically made it seem like the UFC wanted to do a favor for DJ Dillashaw, and by extension, they wanted Demetrius Johnson to do a favor for TJ right. Dillashaw, which you can imagine, in the point of view of Demetrius Johnson, was kind of a non-starter. Well, and even this one talking about why we're doing this fight for the flyweight title, if we're not even sure the flyweight division is going to stick around, Dana White's justification was TJ Dillashaw wanted to win two belts, man. 
He wanted to be he wanted to be one of the special guys, a one two belt. So we're doing this fight, and it's like, so we're just like, this is all a fantasy camp to make T.J. Dillashaw happy. It does feel that way. It feels weird, and then especially when the promoter's primary response to the fight is to kind of kvetch about the the stoppage, which I agree with you. It might have been a hair early, but I, I also agree that it wasn't one of the more egregious things that we've seen. Uh, and if you think about it from like a promotional standpoint, and the very thing that Henry Cejudo offered to TJ Dillashaw was to go up to 135 and fight him again, it would seem like a fairly paint-by-numbers type scenario if you were Dana White to sort of be like, I thought this was an early stoppage. I don't want to take anything away from Henry Cejudo, but let's run this back and do it again up at 135 for TJ Dillashaw's title, and then maybe we'll get a definitive answer exactly what's going on here. That's not necessarily the way that the UFC played it. No. And in fact, for a guy that we've been talking about for a while now, seems like he can barely be troubled to show up to promote his own events. The aftermath the aftermath of, of the this fight in particular kind of made it seem like, is he even trying or processing this stuff in a way that you would want somebody to process it uh, like from a, a, a sales perspective? You're saying that maybe instead of just complaining about things that are out of his control after the fact, the promoter should have perhaps, A, praised the winning fighter, who is now kind of an important guy in the record books for his last two fights, and B, talked about a potential future fight that he might want to sell to us? Yeah, well, and not only that, but like you put the guy in the main event of the first fight card on the new uh, streaming platform that you're going to be on for the next several years, like it must have at least crossed your mind a time or two that TJ Dillashaw might not be the shoe-in winner here and you might have to respond to a scenario where Henry Cejudo was remained the flyweight champion, which again, and we talked about this leading up to the fight, how weird it was for these two guys to fight for the 125-pound title if the plan in some way included the scrapping of that division. Yeah. And now you've got a situation where the 125-pound guy won. I think it's five of these super fights now in a row where the quote-unquote smaller person or the person from the the lesser weight class has won. Uh, now you've got a scenario where it would be even weirder if you canceled the flyweight division. Yes. Especially with Henry Cejudo now one defense into his fly rate, flyweight title reign and going out there trying to do everything he can to sell the fight and then being a capable m- murderer in the cage. Like, I frankly don't see a real good out for the UFC in terms of being like, well, that's we're going to pull the plug on the flyweight division. Well, and why? Why rush to do it now? Like, I think Henry Cejudo made good points when he was like, hey, we had one champion. He was pretty dominant. And people maybe lost a little bit of interest in the division because of that. But now it's a new day. I beat that guy. Then I beat the bantamweight champion. Plus, everybody was complaining that Demetrius Johnson wasn't trying hard enough to sell fights or to play that promotional game. I'm out of here whipping snakes around, man. I'm clearly I'm willing to sell some shit for you. Like, give me a chance. I think he makes a great case when he does that. Plus, when you just kind of take a step back and you realize what you have here that you can promote, you have an Olympic gold medalist who is willing to bring the gold medal with him <laughs> and show it off. He's going to bring props. There's he's no going to about that. Yeah, I mean, he can bring the weird new belt. He can bring the gold medal. He can he can do all that stuff for you. And he can say, like, I beat the most dominant champion the UFC ever had, and then I beat the champion from the division above mine. Why not give it 
you know, six months or another year of flyweights to see if you can do something with that. And why wasn't that the focus right after the fight instead of being like, this was horrible, poor TJ Dillashaw to be like, man, can you guys believe Henry Cejudo? This guy is something special. Next question this week comes to us from Soccer Abba. So you see what they did there. What they do? Two words. First word is soccer, like the game of football. Okay. The second word is ABA. But if you say it real quick. Sakuraba. Sakuraba. Sakuraba writes, what say you? Did Henry Cejudo's 32-second demolition of Tilly Dills just compound the Greg Hardy co-main event fiasco? The whole point of putting Hardy in the co-main was that regular people would pay $5 or avail themselves of a free trial for the business-savvy types to tune in to see him and then stick around to watch some ultra-high-level champ versus champ action. As exciting as it was in the moment for MMA fans, I'm not sure the brief action served up in the main event was enough to get any casual fans counting down the days to the next show. What do you make of this, Ben? Because uh, you could say the same thing happened years ago when they put Cain Velasquez and Junior right. Santos in the heavyweight title fight on the Fox Network. That one ended in you know a minute and six seconds or whatever it was. Now we've got Henry Cejudo out here following up the disqualification of Greg Hardy in the co-main event with a 32-second win over Tilly, Tilly Dills, TJ Dillashaw. Do you feel like casual people tune in and see that and be like, man, that's a letdown? I think you have to take this one more of like a, a cumulative view because the UFC on Fox one, they made it a point. We're just doing a one fight card. Yeah. We're just like, we didn't even broadcast the other fights, just, just the heavyweight title fight. And so then when it ends in a minute, six seconds, it does feel like I sat through 15 minutes of you guys talking at the desk just to watch that. But this, I think the journey that we would have had in mind for the casual MMA or fan or mainstream sports viewer would have been to kind of join the card when it was on ESPN TV, right? Like that was the idea. We're going to show four fights on from the prelims on actual ESPN ending with Donald Cerrone versus Alexander Hernandez, which was a crackerjack. Yep. That one, that one uh, lived up to everything they wanted to be in the slot that they wanted it to be in. Exactly. Strategically placed as John Anik put it again. And it did exactly what you wanted it to do. And so then if you're the kind of person that says, all right, that was fun. I'll, I'll join the free trial and take the ride here on ESPN plus. And then, you know, you get a six fight card on ESPN plus that moves somewhat briskly well enough, better than the Fox Sports 1 stuff did. So you, you sit through, you know, Glover Teixeira's uh, win, Paige Van Zandt, Ray Solosevich, uh, Joe Benavidez and Dustin Ortiz, fishing with the gift. Uh, then the Greg Hardy, Alan Crowder debacle. And then you wrap up pretty quickly. Like, I think at that point, people aren't going, you know what? I didn't feel like I got enough MMA. Even if they're like, I would have preferred a more conclusive, clear ending to the fight. It's not the same feeling of, Man, I, I, I'm not sold yet. Yeah, we've been complaining for a long time how much this, how long this stuff takes to watch. Right. I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that the main event was too short. It feels like <laughs> yes. I'm not in the position to do that right now. Next question is from Isaac Spooner. He writes, he's he's going to make the most of a three word question here: Cejudo Benavidez rematch. Wow. So succinct. You, you did get Joe B go out there and beat Dustin Ortiz on the main card of this thing, Ben. And as we just discussed, you now get yourself into a situation where you got to do something with Henry Cejudo. I don't know if you're going to force him to go up to 135. I don't know if he's going to choose to go up to 135. But you got Joseph Benavidez. You got Juicy Formija hanging around. You got Ray Borg. You got some other guys uh, knocking on the door there of top contendership status at 125 pounds. What's the right thing to do with Henry Cejudo right now? I kind of like the idea of a Benavidez rematch just because it's the only other guy other than Demetrius Johnson to beat him. 
But I think if you have the opportunity to have Cejudo and Dillashaw run it back at 135, it's just kind of the obvious move. Right. From a business standpoint, for sure. Right. I mean, the Benavidez one can wait. If you're, if you're planning on keeping the flyweight division around, either way, after, you know, if Henry Cejudo goes up to 135 and loses to TJ Dillashaw, then he can come back down to flyweight and fight Benavidez. Uh, if he wins up there, then, you know, you could have a lot of fun doing either one bantamweight or flyweight. So I wouldn't be in a hurry to book that rematch, but I don't hate that rematch if that's all you can do. Yeah. At what point does becoming a champ champ lose its luster? Has it already? Yes, it has already has. Okay, so if Cejudo goes up to 135 and let's say he's victorious there over TJ Dillashaw and then he jumps up on the cage with the two belts, and at this point we're just photoshopping different people's heads onto that onto that. Uh, photo op, I guess yes. you could say. Yeah. Uh, does that bring him any additional panache? Does he like get anything from it? Get he get any promotional push that he wouldn't ordinarily get? Or like, if he becomes the one thirty five pound champion at that point, is Dana White just gonna be like, "See, we told you, done with flyweight." Okay, let's <laughs> close the doors on one twenty five. It does feel like the UFC is just waiting around for a suitable excuse to get rid of flyweight, doesn't it? It's like the keep saying we'll see. The same way I say to my kids when they ask if we can get ice cream on the way home. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. See how the day unfolds. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, One thing I wanted to know what you thought. Did the weight cut maybe affect TJ Dillashaw's ability to take a shot there? It's real tempting to say that, isn't it? It is. Especially since we got an up-close and personal look at all the weird stuff that TJ Dillashaw went through to make 125 pounds. Did not seem enjoyable. From Brett Okamoto at ESPN. Uh and then he, you're, yeah, he does go out there and and gets dropped with the essentially the first flurry of punches that connected in the fight, and well, he gets shoved over, right? Like yeah, a child, he got like bouncer a small shoved, child, yes, uh, by Henry Cejudo. And I think you're like, I think there might be something to that. Like, I'm not a doctor, obviously, I don't, I can't tell you what was going on inside T.J. Dillashaw's body, but like at the same time, uh, to see him get kind of run over by Henry Cejudo when we've seen him fight guys like uh, uh, Cody Garbrandt and, you know, take uh, arguably worse beatings and bounce back from them. And, like, the thing – one of the things that is almost more – kind of more points in this direction than anything else is sort of like guy didn't get fully knocked out. It was like you could see him kind of, like, trying to get his bearings and it seemed like his body just kind of wouldn't respond, which is one of those things that makes me wonder, like maybe the extra weight cut did, uh, you know, uh, affect him more than, than he thought it was going to. I'm sure he would argue, you know, look at those Garbrandt fights and that's proof that you should have let me keep going there and that, that it was stopped too soon. But I also think that one right hand kind of behind the ear that face planted him was not a huge heavy shot. And he was just kind of like, Oh, you know, I was a little bit disoriented, but I was fine. It was like, Maybe you were a little disoriented because they're just your brain was dehydrated. It does yeah. seem like there's at least anecdotal evidence from what we've seen in MMA that weight cutting does affect your ability to take a shot. All right, I, mean, next, I wouldn't next, be surprised if that played a role here. Next question this week comes to us from Dave Dalby, who writes, Guys, Greg Hardy's actual UFC debut seemed to end in the most Greg Hardy way possible. Discourse. Yeah, that's something, isn't it? This is yet another one of those situations. Like, you know... uh, completely removed from what kind of person you think Greg Hardy is and whether or not from like a moral standpoint, you think that the UFC should view him as a, a highly promotable entity. It seemed like yet another situation where you take a guy who has like three fights and you throw him in the UFC and you put him in this high profile situation where he goes out there against Alan Crowder. And it kind of looks like 
you know, two guys that ought to be fighting at a casino uh, in Montana somewhere, you know, or like in rural Arizona, these guys should be fighting. I don't know that I can recall a situation where they took where any promoter has taken like a really inexperienced fighter and like pushed them to the to the Dickens to CM, CM Punk. to high heavens and it it turned out great, right? <laughs> can you recall a situation where they put like a a, a really inexperienced green fighter in there and you were like wow this person is amazing to me every time we see it it's like well this person's not ready yeah that's what you get when you take a person who's not ready and you put them out there yeah okay and see i had a couple takeaways from the greg hardy fight the first one being you're right after when you get past the first two minutes of this fight when it turns out that he's thrown his bombs and alan crowder is still there then you start to see oh yeah we just haven't seeing this guy really have to do a whole lot else than what he's already done. And then you look at him and you realize there's some gaping holes in the game, like in the takedown department and just the uh, overall fight IQ department. There's some stuff there that isn't there, which makes sense for a guy who's three and O coming into it. And you're totally right that it does seem like once you get into the second round of that fight, you're remembering why you don't usually do this, why it doesn't usually happen that way. Now, as for the ending, yeah, like you said, I think a lot of people, it's easy to, if you're coming from this, coming at this from a place where you're thinking Greg Hardy is a bad person and then he does a bad thing and you're like, see, uh, proof. But this, I actually feel was due more to just inexperience as a fighter that you could see him he's holding on to the head he's clearly waiting to throw the knee alan crowder is down on two knees he gets one foot up so that he's down on one knee and that's when he throws it as if he was just like trying to time it until he when he got up and he screwed that up which you can see maybe a three and oh fighter making that mistake yeah yeah it's and it's it does seem like a case of inexperience and maybe not being quite up to the moment, like being thrown in the deep end before you're, you're ready to be there. Is Alan Crowder the deep end? It's the deep end for Greg Hardy. Okay. I mean, he's walking out toward the deep end, right? Maybe (laughs) he didn't even get to the deep end and just decided that's far enough. (laughs) Uh, But like it, yeah, I mean, I don't think it was a situation where he cheated on purpose. I don't think it was a situation where he was like trying to get out of the fight. And I don't think it was a situation where he just didn't know the rule because it's 2019, man. At this point, you got to know the rule. I think it's a situation where he did a dumb thing in the heat of the moment, uh, which maybe you could argue is kind of a thing for Greg Hardy. Uh, But at the same time, like for this specific guy in this specific spot, he honestly probably couldn't have done anything much worse. Yeah. And Daniel Cormier was just just said it immediately as soon as he as soon as it was as soon as it happened he was like oh he did not need that like that was exactly the wrong thing to happen to him in this in this situation. Now, as the mastermind behind Dundasso, when you see something like that happen, how surprised were you to see it end in an actual disqualification? One of the things that almost never happens in MMA. Well, yeah, it. I mean, it's weird, and you'll notice that like I saw some people online saying that this was a mistake by Dan Mergliata, and it might have been a mistake to say. To announce out loud, right. I'm going to disqualify Greg Hardy if Alan Crowder can't continue. Right. Ideally, you wouldn't want the downed fighter to have that in his head. Like right. you, that's why like we've seen in past circumstances where a fighter who has been fouled is trying to ask the referee, well, what happens? And he's like, hey, don't worry about that. 
tell me whether you can continue or not. Right. That's what we're trying to settle. And then, yeah, and like they do that for that reason because you don't want to have to think like, did he hear that? And then think like, all right, I'm going to stay down here and get my win bonus. Yeah. And so like, again, it's the kind of thing where we're never going to know, right? We're never going to know exactly what was going on with Alan Crowder or how hurt he was or, or what had happened. But uh, I mean, it was a blatant and a blatant enough illegal move and a significant enough strike that I felt pretty comfortable with the disqualification. Right. Well, if only because as we've said before in outlining why Dundasso is such an effective martial art in this sport, it's because even if you feel like the pressure is on Alan Crowder to continue. And even if he felt like maybe he could have continued, he did take a significant strike there. And if you get back up and get back in the fight, you've kind of ceded an advantage to Greg Hardy at that point. You've let him land kind of without consequence a blow that could easily have an impact on deciding how the rest of the fight goes. So even if you're like, even if you were to tell me that in your omniscience, you looked into Alan Crowder's head and saw he was capable of continuing, I still wouldn't blame him too much for not continuing just because that's, that's some bullshit to let somebody knee upside the head like that, a giant 275-pound man, and then expect you just to jump back in there and be like, oh, it's all good, man. Don't worry about it. So the Great Dane writes in, people put their name on the line for me, Hardy said. This obviously is a quote from Greg Hardy. People put their name on the line for me. That may not mean a lot to you regular people. It means a lot to me, man. And the Great Dane has done us the, the solid of putting the word regular in all caps here. And then he writes, that quote likely sums up Greg Hardy's feelings regarding how he ranks in regards to everyone else and possibly why he has been unrepentant, unrepentant for his alleged past actions and why he will hopefully never garner many fans in the UFC and will soon be gone. Ben, this is an interesting quote from Greg Hardy. Do you regard this as a significant slip of the tongue where you know, maybe Greg Hardy thinks Greg Hardy is pretty awesome. He said a couple things like this, honestly. And I can see how after you go to the NFL from being a standout defensive lineman at Old Miss and you're an all-pro defensive tackle and then now the UFC has jumped all on board with you after only a few fights that you would feel like I am special and uh, special things are owed to me. Like I think that... Honestly, though, it's not uncommon to hear this kind of sentiment from a pro fighter. Like, even if you just heard it from another UFC fighter, that wouldn't surprise me that much. They do often come at it from a view of like, well, hey, we're a different type of human being than the rest of you regular people. And maybe to some extent that's true in a lot of ways. But it was interesting to me how, like, I got what he was trying to say. Like, hey, I feel... He was like on the brink of tears during his press post-fight press conference, basically saying like, I feel worse because I feel like I let all these people down who have kind of gone out on a limb just by being associated with me. And then I made this mistake and I, I felt like, okay, I could empathize with that feeling that, and yet at the same time, the you regular people, you wouldn't possibly understand that then kind of like immediately distances you from that empathy. Right. Well, uh, what happens to Greg Hardy now? I think we know, I think we, we were probably in agreement about what should happen to Greg Hardy, but like if you were, if you're the UFC, try to put yourself in the UFC's shoes. What does the UFC do with Greg Hardy? Do you run him out there again in the octagon? Do you send him back to the contender series? Uh, what do you do? Oh, they're definitely putting him back in the octagon again. The question for me is, does the UFC look at kind of how that fight played out and go, okay, so Alan Crowder, too tough. 
too tough. We got to scale it back a little bit. Let's see who else we can find. Somebody who will just get knocked out really quickly and won't still be there and push him in other elements of the game. Yeah, one of the unfortunate things about the timing of that illegal knee was that Alan Crowder was kind of getting a little warm. He was. He was about to have like an NBA Jam moment. Well, and Greg maybe Hardy, he was on fire. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, he did go for. He kind of went for this desperation takedown and kept digging for it, and then Hardy sprawled out, and then that's what led to the knee. But Greg Hardy seemed like he was getting a little tired. Yes. He also seemed like the only thing he knew how to do was throw bombs, and that had worked in his career up until this point. And then when it didn't work, he was kind of running out of other stuff to do. I. If I were the UFC, I would look at that and be like, okay, this is a reminder that this dude is still very green at this. And if you put somebody in there who can take a punch and who has a little bit of cage generalship in him, they can make him look bad. Next question this week comes to us from Brandon Boyd, not the lead singer of Incubus. He writes, so it looks like Cowboy Cerrone is back on the horse, submits Mike Perry, then goes out and takes Alexander Hernandez behind the woodshed and beats on the kid like he stole his prized mule. Cowboy says he went back to lightweight to get the belt, but could you please discuss how far he could actually go and where does a Cowboy McGregor fight rank on your hashtag would watch meter? Now, Ben, we talked about this uh, last week as well, that Alexander Hernandez showed up to the Thursday press conference for UFC on ESPN Plus one uh throwing them heaters he was ready to go he had some prepared material worked out to sort of uh try to bring cowboy cerrone down a peg cowboy cerrone of course went with the sort of elder statesman clint eastwood style look here youngster i can't wait for saturday night i believe he called him my little friend at one point (laughs) which is uh which is pretty good uh Alexander Hernandez starts out this fight pretty hot. He landed some some big shots, one big uppercut. Uh, but as soon as Cowboy Cerrone found his range and was able to start sort of getting off with his combinations, he really turned this thing around and, of course, ends it in the second round with a head kick followed by strikes on the ground. Uh, then he gets on the mic and calls out Conor McGregor. And Conor McGregor, uh, in a way that he doesn't always do, not only responded but was like, with for a fight like that, I'll fight you. Yeah. So, like, do we think that this is a thing that could actually happen? When when Cowboy first proposed a fight with Conor McGregor several weeks ago after the Mike Perry fight, I believe, we were kind of like, that seems like a weird matchup. I have to admit, I've warmed to it a little bit yeah. now. And I think, like, if you're Conor McGregor and you want a largely stand-up fight, you want to have a, a promotable guy across from you, right now, at 155 pounds, I feel like Donald Cerrone might actually totally fit the bill. Isn't... Like 80% of trying to book a Conor McGregor fight, getting Conor McGregor on board. Yes. And once you've done that, which he did, like publicly, and you're right, not even in the, listen here, you little weasel, I'll knock you, knock you's head off. It's more like respectful, like, yeah, good job. I'll fight you. Let's do it. Once you got that, you got, you know, people excited about Donald Cerrone after he beats a hot prospect coming up. And... He just did it on big ESPN in front of a pretty sizable audience. If you're the UFC, it seems like this is a a softball just lobbed right over the plate here, right? Yeah, it seems like that rare situation where you put a person in exactly the right situation and they did exactly the right thing. And now you can springboard that into a pay-per-view fight against Conor McGregor. Do you think it will give the UFC pause, though, to be like, all right, we don't have a belt on the line here. But it's got to be a pay-per-view, and it's got to be the headliner of a pay-per-view. I think, you know, Tyron Woodley has said that Conor McGregor has it in his contract now that he will not share pay-per-view space with anybody else who's getting a cut of the pay-per-view. So it's not like you can put him 
on the undercard of Valentina Shevchenko versus Jessica I or something for the the women's flyweight title. So do you think the UFC can just go, hey, we know you want to see this fight. You know you want to see this fight. This is a pay-per-view headliner because Conor McGregor is in it. So give us your 60 bucks. Frankly, yeah. Like, both these guys are going to show up and sell the fight. I think we know that. Connor's going to do his Connor thing, and we've seen what Cerrone does, which is, you know, pretty genuine and not all that often over the top. And I, w- I would actually forecast, like you said, like kind of a respectful lead-up between these these two guys. I mean, I'm sure that Connor's going to make fun of Cerrone's hat, but, like, above and beyond that, I think that you've got a couple of professionals here that are going to respect what the other guy does. And I don't think you would break the pay-per-view record. Like, I don't think this would go over McGregor, Nurmagomedov. But, like, I think this sells a decent amount of pay-per-views for the UFC, certainly enough to make it worth it. Plus, maybe you think that it's a winnable fight for Conor McGregor, and then he puts you back into a Nurmagomedov title rematch scenario? I mean, if if you're hunting around for winnable fights, this is a pretty good one. However, like, we have seen what happens when you underestimate Cowboy Cerrone. And I would think that a Conor McGregor fight... Like, there's two ways that it ends, right? Knockout win for McGregor or triangle choke win for Donald Cerrone. I mean, like, the reason you want to put Cowboy out there or anybody out there with McGregor is to get a largely stand-up-based fight for Conor McGregor. I don't think we should overlook the fact that, like, Donald Cerrone is super dangerous on the ground. Yeah, but also kind of has a little bit of that Diaz in him where he will rarely be the one to take it there. Yeah. All right, next question this week from Alex Pacey. He writes, C-level Kane motivated BJ. Can we now add fatherhood Cerrone to yeah. that list? Donald Cerrone undefeated since the birth of his child. However, he's, it's just 2-0, and o, right? Mike Perry and Alexander Hernandez. So it's not like he's run off eight wins in a row here. Right, but I don't I don't know about you. When I see that baby in the audience now with the, the earphones on to protect his delicate sense of hearing uh, still in development, I immediately flash forward to... Like the kid being 17 years old, still wearing the earphones uh, in the crowd as Donald Cerrone's win streak goes to 42-0. and 0. Yeah. I mean, that'd be a heck of a story, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, let's talk about this fight itself for a minute. Yeah. Because I think you and I were both emotionally trying to prepare ourselves for something bad to happen to Donald Cerrone yeah. at the hands of the young gun, Alexander Gus or Alexander Hernandez here. Uh it seemed like all the pieces were in play for another one of those old aging legend guy gets sacrificed as a stepping stone for a younger guy. Alexander Hernandez was clearly expecting that. He did kind of what you would advise someone to do, I think, in a fight against Donald Cerrone, which is get after him early. Yeah. You know he starts slow, and if you can jump on him, uh, hurt him to the body, get him moving backwards, then your chances get a lot better. And then about halfway through the round, things start to turn a little bit, and Alexander Hernandez gets a look on his face like, I didn't know this was going to be this difficult. Yeah. I thought that this was going to be a little easier night of work. Now well, I'm bleeding from both eyes. Right. It was kind of a classic Cowboy Cerrone fight. He's a slow starter. He like needs to get his bearings a little bit. Uh, and I think he was, I don't know if he was taken aback. He probably expected it, but he was certainly like feeling the power and the quickness of Alexander Hernandez early on. But it did seem like once he figured out his range and was able to start snapping off those four, five, six punch combinations that he has and, and like following with the kicks. And he landed a couple of really nice body kicks in this yeah. fight, too. That looked really like helped set up the head kick hurt. problem. Yeah. Uh, he was, you could kind of see it come over Cerrone of being like, oh, like I'm better. I'm a better fighter than this guy. And this is what I do. Like this is my thing. And he's doing it. And then he, then yeah, it was it was pretty much all cowboy from then on out. Um, 
What did you think of Alexander Hernandez's his response after the fight? Because I felt like pretty good. Yeah, right? that's a, that's about as good as you can do it after you went out there beforehand and you said you saw a guy yeehawn with a pop gun uh, swinging on a saddle, and then he comes out there and does cowboy shit to you, and then afterwards to be like, "You taught me an important lesson today. I will yep. learn from this." Yeah, no, I thought it was I thought it was pretty good, and you know he's still super young. This was what his third fight in the UFC. Uh, he, like Alexander Hernandez is not just going to go away. He's still a super tough guy with lots of good skills and a very athletic guy. He's, he's still, you know, for all intents and purposes has a super bright future in that weight class. Next question this week comes to us from Mark Featherstone who writes, I'll keep this short and sweet. The greatest fisherman in MMA, Mike Gregor Gillespie also be in the process of proving that he is also one of the greatest prospects in MMA. Let's discuss. Yeah. I think especially when you consider his style and how it matches up with some of the top guys in this division, I think you got to ask yourself just how far it can go. I've been saying it for a while. And I know some people were a little be disappointed with the way this fight went, but he had a clear advantage over Yancey Medeiros in the wrestling and grappling department, and he was going to use that. Why wouldn't you? And then keeps it up on it, keeps the, that pressure so high on him that he finally you know finishes him. And I think that even if it's not standing there throwing them haymakers, if you look around at you know, Nurmagomedov and, and some of the guys uh, at the top of the lightweight division. And you ask yourself, how does Gregor Gillespie do against Dustin Poirier? You know, how does he do against guys like Tony Ferguson? I don't know, man. I think he does all right. Yeah, I think he does really well. He's 6-0 and in the UFC now, 13-0 and overall. His last five fights have all been stoppages. Like, this was a second round TKO, like one second before the bell, yeah. granted. But at the same time, I don't, necess- don't necessarily know how you look at this and you think, like, disappointing or boring performance from Gregor Gillespie. Now, I think Yancey Medeiros was doing some stuff that made it so that Gillespie just kind of had to try to control him for much of the fight. I think, you know, Medeiros, uh, considering that he doesn't necessarily have the the real high-level grappling credentials that Gregor Gillespie does, was doing okay in terms of, like, getting up and, and staying out of danger and, and keeping it going. And then, obviously, gets TKO'd right there at the end of the second round. But, like... uh I don't know like how you really criticize this performance from Gregor Gillespie. Like, I don't think he's boring by any stretch of the imagination. And granted, like I like to watch grappling, like mixed martial arts is half grappling. And like, I think watching a spirited grappler is one of the funner things in the sport. And Gregor Gillespie is exactly that. Like he's going to go out there and just be sticky and get all over you. And you're not going to get him off. And he is just going to be constantly relentless. And which, then he's going to take you fishing afterwards. And then, yeah, take you out to catch a, a a grouper. I don't know. I don't know what he fishes for. All kinds Probably of shit. Probably not grouper off the coast of Florida, but like maybe something. Rainbow trout. Take you out fishing for a rainbow trout. What would you think? And like, I, I don't want to rush the guy into a title shot or anything like that. And the state of the 155-pound division is such that Gregor Gillespie probably has a ways to go before anybody starts thinking about putting him in a, a, a fight for the gold. But like when you just like watch his skills, I would be fascinated to watch him try to fight Habib Nurmagomedov. Yeah, I think stylistically it would be interesting to see how that one goes because I think you need somebody who can definitely deal with that aspect of uh, Nurmagomedov's game plus the just high pace, the nonstop motor that he brings. I think you know we might see that fight and then be like, oh yeah, no, there's a reason that uh, Nurmi is Nurmi. Right. But I don't know. You you wouldn't have a hard time getting me interested in it. I'll say that. 
All right, next question from Jimmy Haley. You guys see that someone stole the greatest fisherman in MMA, Gregor Gillespie's bag after his fight? And he's such a cool dude that he went to Instagram and told them he only wanted his wallet back and they could keep the memorabilia because he doesn't really want to go to the DMV. Are you fucking kidding me? This sport doesn't deserve you, Gregor. I did see this and I I had the same reaction. I think what he said was all he really wanted back were his mouth guards, which implied that he had several mouth guards, which were special to him. And his wallet, because he didn't want to have to go to the DMV and get a new license. And it was like, man, yeah, I get you, Gregor Gillespie. Also, though, uh, he seemed to be approaching it from a stance that definitely was some crazed fan who just wanted UFC memorabilia. I don't know, man. Maybe everybody has the same, like, Reebok bags back there in the locker room, like, in the area that only, like, fighters and trainers have access You're to. Somebody, somebody could have picked it up and yeah. taken it home by accident? Yeah, you get, you know, you're halfway back to... Uh, Chicago or wherever you came from and you look in and you realize, ah, damn it, this stuff says Gillespie all over it. It's full of bait. Yeah. I open it up and it's just like <laughs> night crawlers. Just a bunch of styrofoam containers full of night crawlers. Yeah, that's how you know you got Gregor Gillespie stuff. Chad, before we go any further, I have some uh, I have some concerning news to share okay. with you. Well, I don't know what this is, so I'm, I'm already feeling concerned. I've just received an email uh a wealthy industrialist by the name of H.R. Laudamer III is launching what can only be described as a hostile takeover bid for the CME. Oh, man. How much is he offering? It's it's a lot. Tell me about the money. A lot of money? See, I was afraid that this is what you're going to ask. It's, it's a very aggressive play to acquire ownership of the CME. But I must tell you, this H.R. Laudamer III, his record – as an owner of podcasts, it's pretty dismal. He is known for immediately fettering the discourse. Oh, no. that Surely that could never happen to us, the co-main event podcast. Also throwing in just copious, annoying ads. Well, what can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen, Ben? How do we stay out of the clutches of whoever that person was you just mentioned? H.R. Latimer III. H.R. Latimer III. The only way, Chad, that I see for us to maintain our independence and fight off the reach of this just aggressive vulture capitalist is through funding via our Patreon. Okay, from interesting. The people. Interesting. Tell they, me more. They need to go to patreon.com slash co-main event, and if they are not already subscribers – to the co-main event Patreon, they need to get on board and show that collectively the will of the people can overcome this kind of just egregious, rapacious capitalism on the part of H.R. Laudamer III. That's interesting. And if they go over there and do that, there's a lot of cool stuff that they become eligible for. That's right. They become eligible for streaming events, for a whole extra podcast every week called the CME Power Hour, where we do the increasingly popular CME Power Hour Power Rankings rolls right off the tongue. That's Friday. We do that. And we'll be rolling they, out live chats first week of February. Live start chats up. the first week of February. Plus, they would get access to the Deadwood Rewatch podcast, Road Agents. Road Agents. Also beginning in February. And the Day of Reckoning Drinking Challenge, also coming in February. I believe that's February 22nd. Available only to patrons of the CME. Go over to Patreon slash co-main event to get a full description of uh, what you get for different payment tiers. Moving on here, Ben, this question comes to us from my former colleague, Jonathan Snowden. What did you guys make of Paige Van Zant's win over Rachel Ostovich? I think enthusiastic, quasi-skilled grappling is the best thing about MMA. There's something really fun about two people out there just trying to do shit. Uh, do you agree in all caps? Now, this was another fight 
Paige Van Zandt against uh, Rachel Ostovich, where it seemed early on that maybe Rachel Ostovich's takedowns and and top control was just going to be too much, and the you know the largely stand up based game against of Paige Van Zandt wasn't wasn't going to be able to win the day. Uh, however, and you know this UFC on ESPN Plus One card was full of a lot of kind of like comeback victories, and Paige Van Zandt was certainly one of those. Well, yeah, it seemed like. Uh Rachel Ostovich's thing was that she could bully Paige Van Zant around and seemed just like a more physically imposing fighter. But Paige Van Zant would have these moments where she catches you slipping and she can start to do something. She did a little bit in the first round uh, looking for a leg lock uh, when Rachel Ostovich was really committed to the takedowns. And then in the second round where you screw up just a little bit and she's on your back. And as soon as she's on your back, it's a problem. It's not just trying to control you, which it seemed like Ostovich was trying to do for a lot of the fight. She was really looking for finishing opportunities for just punching uh, really aggressively from the back, making you move, making you give something up and then catches that arm bar as she's getting out the door. And let's say fortunately for Rachel Ostovich's arm was willing to let go as soon as she felt even just the mild, you know, finger only tap because the referee wasn't in a great position to see it. Right. I feel like with Paige Van Zant, this is a situation where a couple of things had to happen. Like she had to move up to women's flyweight, which I think was a, a good move for her. And I also sort of feel like the Paige and Sage, I don't know if that I want to say hysteria, but like that sort of needed to pass because there was certainly like a uh, a perception of Paige Van Zant early on in her UFC career. And I don't necessarily even know that it was an incorrect perception. It was probably a, a you know, a, a right, the right way to think about it was that, you know, the UFC had decided that these two like young, attractive fighters were going to be stars. And so it, it put them out again in a situation where maybe they were a little bit in over their heads and they weren't quite ready for that exposure. Paige Van Zandt still at this point is only 24 years old. She's about to turn 25 years old. I feel like now that the sort of spotlight of being one of the UFC's like golden geese isn't sort of no longer on her, despite the fact that she finds herself in the maiden card here of, of ESPN plus one, uh, that the future is relatively bright. Like I'm not necessarily going to say that she's like uh, going to be the champion or is even going to be like a, a hall of famer or like a main event star. But like you start to see from Paige Van Zant, like she's got some skills. She's clearly relentless. She's clearly tough. And she's young enough that I think, you know, if they continue to kind of bring her along the proper way, like there's no reason to think that Paige Van Zant isn't going to be a capable, maybe even like uh, top of the pack flyweight. Well, you're, it's also, I think that now she's been around long enough that people are like, okay, she's got some fight in her and she actually really wants to do this. Because I think one of the things that maybe people were responding to was, you see all this stuff come her way really early on. You know, she gets a, a Reebok deal. The UFC is really trying to spotlight her. And it's starting to feel like, okay, you're, you're setting her up for this. And then she's going to be trying to do movies and dancing with the stars. And the next thing you know, she's gone. And instead, you know, she's been in there. She's been through some tough fights. She's still uh, in there with people like uh, Rachel Ostovich. You know, for me, the uh, turning point a little bit was when she had that fight against Rose Namajunas, who turned out to be pretty good, yeah. and just got beat up pillar to post. And there were plenty of opportunities where it looked like she's going to get finished here. And, you know, she she stayed in that fight all the way until the fifth round until she was finally choked out. And it was like, okay, 
that's clearly somebody who who has the dog in them in a little bit. Like that is not somebody who is just uh, in here trying to cash in on being a pretty face. And now you see a couple years later where she's still out here doing it. I don't think she's ever going to be the champion, especially in that division. I think you could see her get thrown around a little bit in this one, but uh, I do think that she can she can win some fights, and she's still adding some stuff to the game. Next question this week comes to us from Justin Manning, who writes, What are your initial thoughts on the portion of the UFC broadcast that was on ESPN? I love the fact that they're going all in, dedicating the scoreboard bar to advertising the upcoming fights. Commercial breaks pushed the upcoming Whitaker-Gasolum card, and it seemed like every fourth commercial featured UFC fighters. And to be honest, it couldn't have gone much better than three finishes with a fucking Cerrone barn burner on the undercard. Four words, though. Stephen fucking A. Smith. Maybe he lends credibility with most viewers, but I wish that they had gotten Rogan to commentate on the TV portion of the debut night. Now, Ben, clearly including Stephen A. Smith on the televised portion of the UFC broadcast was not going to be a popular choice with a lot of people. That's a polarizing figure, to say the least, in the landscape of sports broadcasting. But what did you think overall of our first taste of like the UFC on ESPN television? Yeah, I knew, yeah, when you see Stephen A. Smith, you know what the reaction is going to be. But you also know what ESPN was kind of thinking. Like, if you just have all the usual people, if it's Karen Bryant and Michael Bisping and Rashad Evans talking to each other, and then they go to, uh, you know, John Anik and Daniel Cormier uh, talking to each other, then it just seems like you're doing the exact same thing. You just changed out Fox Sports 1 for your ESPN in the bottom corner or something. Right, you know, right. like, I understand that they would want to put somebody – who was immediately associated with their brand right out there. So you could be reminded like, oh, yeah, this is a new thing. This is UFC on ESPN. It's a whole separate thing. Um, I did think, you know, watching it, it is always kind of surreal. Like these moments make you reflect on where we've been with this sport. We were thinking about watching shit on Versus way back in the day. And now here we are on ESPN. And it feels like, all right, yeah. This is kind of special. And I always, though, wonder, where does it go from here? Because right. it's easy for somebody to get behind it. The first big show, everybody's excited. Like we talked about Honeymoon Phase, everybody having lots of sex. Uh, and now you get into like six months, a couple of years into the deal. Are you still that excited about putting it front row center and having the ticker promote upcoming UFC cards? Yeah, and we've seen UFC relationships particularly kind of sour over time. So one of the most interesting things about the company moving over to ESPN, I think we'll be seeing like, okay, does that enthusiasm continue? And can the UFC and ESPN even stay on the same page? Because a lot of times with corporate partners and, you know, big stars and broadcasters, it seems like once the thing is said and done, everyone is happy to part ways. So we'll just have to see how this plays out. I know we got some more questions coming up about how the UFC and ESPN relationship is going to play out. So we'll just keep pushing through. Here's one from uh, Brendan Mizgala who writes, I'm going to keep this short and sweet for you. That new championship belt. Are you fucking kidding me? That thing is hideous. So the UFC went from an actual gorgeous title belt to what looks like a cheap kid's toy. Just some seriously awful shit. Please discourse. Now, Ben, I would admit that when I saw the, the promotional photos and the breakdown of the UFC's new title belt, during the week last week, I kind of had a similar response. I was kind of like, okay, that is would not have been my choice to be the UFC title belt. I thought it was weird looking. Uh, like I said on the Power Hour, it's got a very kind of clunky, chunky look. It's got a lot of uh, uh, like gold shapes all over it. It's very sort of uh, uh, 
uh, I can't even think of the word, but just like kind of looks like it's made for the so that the people in the back can really see. Yeah, or like see. it's made out of Legos or something. It just looks <laughs> like it's kind of stuck together. There were some things that I thought were cool about it, like the the fact that you know they're gonna start. Everyone starts with with white jewels around the belt, and then as you get more title defenses, they swap those out for red ones. I think like that that's kind of cool. And I have to say when I saw the actual belt in action getting strapped around the waist of Henry Cejudo at the end of the night, I thought it was a little bit better. Like I'm change is hard. Obviously people yeah. are going to be negative about stuff whenever you change it. But when I saw the, the actual belt around the waist of the actual champion, I was like, okay, it's not as bad as I thought it was to begin with. Yeah. And like you said, it's always going to be something where when you go to a new thing, people still have the old thing in mind. Uh, I, it wasn't, spectacular but i think we probably as a community tend to overreact to stuff like that i think yeah six months from now we'll forget about it uh this question from austin krompaski he writes so how about that espn plus pacing i attended the event in person bruce buffer claiming a sold out barclays center made me crack up and how quickly the card moved blew me away i had previously attended two other fight nights and they both dragged in parts for one of them fight night 50 from uncasville connecticut i was able to leave at the end of the prelims gamble for a half hour or so get a drink and get back to my seat all without missing a second of fighting well well done austin yeah saturday i got out of my seat after cowboys uh, spoke to grab a beer and by the time i got back to my seat Glover had already choked out that random guy he was fighting. I lived two trains away, and with a six-fight main card, I was still back in my apartment by 1.30 a.m. It was miles better than my previous experiences, and I can imagine it would have been better at home as well. Is it possible this could be a permanent change, or are we just basking in a glorious moment before they realize we're a captive audience and that they can sell stuff to us? Discourse. Uh, I mean, one of the things that would clearly needed to change as the UFC moved from Fox to ESPN was the pacing of the events. And despite the fact that nobody ever acknowledged that publicly from within the UFC and or its broadcast partner, you got to think that that was a thing that they understood, right? Yeah, especially for this first one when everybody is looking at it going, how is this going to work? And yeah, when you show me that we're going to be strictly business and move from one fight here to the next with minimal interruptions, that's encouraging for me, especially when you're going from telling people, hey, most of this stuff is going to be on TV to most of this stuff is going to be streaming. It helps if you can also sweeten that by being like, and the streaming is a lot more respectful of your time. Yeah. Like it makes it easier for you to watch an entire event. And the, then you're going, all right, I'm getting some value add for the added money I'm paying for this thing. And that's how I felt about, I mean, obviously whenever I see a commercial on a streaming service, I, my eye twitches in anger right. just because you already paid. I already paid my money. Um, I would even prefer it when you, they show the little screen that says commercial break in progress. Like, Hey, yeah, tell me, tell me we're taking a break, but don't try to sell me anything. I, I appreciate that. Uh, so I kind of liked the way that most of the main card worked and yeah, in the one true time zone, this thing was over by about 1030. You got a full night of fighting action there and uh, you didn't feel like, you had to battle just to get to the end. Right. The main event did not feel like a dessert that you only get after eating your vegetables. So uh, if that continues, 
I'm going to be pretty excited about the ESPN Plus thing. Next question this week comes to us from David H. He writes, so the pause, rewind, fast forward functionality is awful on the old ESPN app, but I feel conflicted about complaining about it. This is because I was a witness to the MMA internet universe losing their damn minds about the number one versus number four college basketball game featuring one of the biggest team in sports being a tight game and having two minutes left at nine o'clock. Like this was some kind of disaster instead of a huge positive. Are MMA fans looking for something to complain about or is it really just a representation a representation of society as a whole i think it's mainly that mma fans don't give a shit about college basketball exactly and you well you were just also mentioning our tendency to blow things out of proportion i did see some people online being like oh rough start for the for the ufc on espn and i some of it i think ben is like you said we just like don't care about mainstream sports and so we don't have a foothold in that landscape but like the idea that any that the that ESPN would ever do anything besides push the UFC back to accommodate Duke versus Virginia, an important college basketball game, like down the stretch of the college basketball season, just shows like kind of how in the bubble we are. Well, and just that we want the one thing that we want. We don't care about the rest of the sports world, which if you're ESPN, remember that's what you were buying. You were buying the shitty wild men, like and I think something that goes along with that is that the shit-eating wild men typically are not also like, but who won that Duke-Virginia game? How many points did Zion Williamson have? But it is a, it's a great lead-in if you're ESPN trying right. to get a mainstream sports audience interested is because you have a tight, important basketball game that people are going to watch till the very end of. And then you can seamlessly be like, here we go. Here's some uh, some live prize fighting for you. Maybe you check that out. Right. So, yeah, that, that did really work out. Uh I do, though, I totally agree about already the stuff that I went back and checked out after watching the event was how easy is it going to be to go back and find a fight that I saw? Because Fight Pass got really good at that, at really quickly kind of chopping it up and making the functionality on the player itself so that you could watch a full event really easily. You could skip from one fight to the next. You could pick from the fight card which ones you wanted to watch, and you could reach into the library really easily. And right now, when you go to ESPN, you can't really do any of that. Like it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott. You know what I liked with the changes in the ESPN broadcast format? I really enjoyed the interludes with Trevor Whitman. Yeah. The summary of the fight and coach's instructions from a measured and respectable coach is a nice touch. What did you guys think and who do you and which coaches do you think should try out this type of commentary? I agree with this. Like they didn't make a ton of changes moving the UFC over from Fox to ESPN and I don't know that we necessarily expected an entire overhaul of the product by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, adding Trevor Whitman to sort of break down uh, corner instructions uh, after the, you know, the beginning of the second and third round, I thought was really good. And I thought Trevor Whitman was like the perfect guy to do it, even yeah. though if you asked me who should do that, I probably wouldn't have said Trevor Whitman first. But like as soon as his name and face popped up in a graphic on the screen and he started talking about corner instructions. I was like, this is brilliant. Trevor Whitman is exactly the right guy to do this. And frankly, uh, the kind of guy who's going to tell you when he thought it was good and the kind of guy who's going to tell you when he didn't think it was good, which is important for yeah. a person in that position. Well, see, that's what I wondered about because I really enjoyed that aspect of it, uh, especially because if you don't always show us what is being said in the corners between rounds, either because you're cutting away or, or whatever else, it does help to have somebody address like, 
hey, what were they telling the guy who's clearly losing? And do you think that's going to help him? Or what should they have told him? And Trevor Whitman is a guy who really understands that aspect of the game in particular. So yeah, he was a good choice for it. But it also made me wonder, he had a lot of criticism. And yeah. that's kind of what you want him there for, is to say like, hey, these people did not really help out their guy in the corner. Here's what they should have been saying. Um, he's going to hear about that from other coaches and, and other fighters. And you wonder how, like, if it will affect how he does it in the future. Like if he'll decide like, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to have everybody mad at me. I'm going to have a little more praise than criticism going forward. Uh, if he's still going to be able to take that kind of unflinching look. Right. And find out it's more difficult than he thought on the other side of the microphone, yes. perhaps. Yeah. Anytime you add a person like that also, and I'm not saying this specifically about Trevor Whitman because I have no reason to think this. I only have like positive feelings about Trevor Whitman. But like I always felt this way when people were talking about the potential of former fighters to sort of be ringside judges and like referees and stuff like that. MMA is still a pretty small community for all the people that that do it at the highest level. So anytime you add an active coach to your broadcast team, he's probably going to know a lot of the people that he's talking about, the other coaches who are giving instructions to other fighters, and they're probably either going to have a previous friendly or adversarial relationship. So that is one thing that you kind of need to keep in mind about all of that kind of stuff. Next question this week comes to us from Chad Huggins, who writes, just imagine what the subscription lift for ESPN plus could have been if there were not, if it were not for all the signup issues that the network suffered on fight night, which are conspicuously omitted from all the PR recaps touting their success, conduct a Google Twitter search and see how many disappointed MMA fans there were myself and included as they found out that they were unable to sub- subscribe to the new service. I missed half of the main card. The UFC and ESPN should have done due diligence and put the network slash app through proper stress tests, or at least broadcast a simulcast on a sister network for the first event, even if on slight, slight tape delay to encourage new subscriptions. Now I did see this, that there were some sign up problems. And I know that the first thing I tried to do was uh, watch the event from my phone. And I was unable to do that. It just kind of kept freezing on me. So I had to take it to the actual streaming device of my television. But it did seem like, uh, I guess it could be considered a good thing that there was a lot of interest. But it also seemed like maybe this is just day one stuff. Your average debut event is probably going to have some hiccups. But it did seem like there were some issues uh, between the UFC and ESPN, maybe not being ready for the the like crush of viewership on the app. How did you watch it on your TV? Yeah. How did you stream it through the TV? My, my Roku. Okay. And you had no problems with that? No, it was good after I got it going. And I've used it before. Like, as I said, I used it during college football season, and it it, uh, it worked well. Yeah. See, I did it through the computer. I was a little bit surprised when I went to sign up, and they were like, you're already signed up for this. Oh. Uh, and I was like, hello. Uh-huh. An oh. Amazon Prime duo. Okay. I guess I am. Uh, I was really surprised because usually streaming stuff from my frigid basement and my not great internet can be kind of fraught. And uh, I had no issues at all. And I heard from a lot of other people who did have issues and that it kind of surprised me. But uh, I don't know. It seemed like ESPN Plus is not exactly brand new, right? Like they've done some stuff a few months, through yeah. that. So it's not like it's like they had no idea what it was going to be like to broadcast a live sporting event on it. Like I don't know if it could have been that big of a, a stressor to have – all the added MMA people. I mean, do you think this is the most watched thing on ESPN Plus? I don't know. It would seem unlikely, right? So they're doing like college football games and shit like that. I have no idea. I saw a story from, it was either CNBC or CNN that somebody sent me this week just about 
how Disney up to this point has taken an incredible financial bath on all of its streaming services, ESPN Plus included. And Disney, of course, is about to launch Disney Plus, which is basically going to be a streaming service that has all of the Disney Pixar content on it. So they're taking them off Netflix, taking them away from me is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not going to be able to watch Moana on Netflix oh, anymore. Oh, we own Moana on DVD. Don't even start. Well, then you're ahead of the game because otherwise you're going to have to be able to click over to to uh, to Disney Plus. But uh, yeah, it just was an interesting note just to see that it seems to be the kind of thing that they are willing to lose money on, at least in the short term. Uh and it's not that we all need to fall all over ourselves feeling bad for Disney because they're making all of the rest of the money in the world, even if they are taking a loss on their streaming services. But like clearly it's a work in progress, I think, is the overall message there. Next question. This one comes to us from Darcy LeDrew, an old friend of the Co-Main Event podcast that we haven't heard from in a while. Oh. Oh, nice. He writes, lately I've been wondering if the chaotic nature of MMA is its greatest weakness. Anything can happen, and that leads to a lot of instability. Building stars and champions of length seems to spark the inevitable ire of, of the chaos gods more than any other sport. Few champions can make it to five title defenses. Most seem to be lucky to make it to three. I can't help but think the high turnover at the top of the ladder means that Whenever casual fans blink at our world, it looks chaotic, confusing, and unfamiliar. I can't, can't count the number of times I've heard, quote, wasn't that Irish guy the champ? Even on ESPN, this will remain a niche sport. Discourse, please. I think it'll, it will remain somewhat a niche sport, but I don't know if it's necessarily mainly because of that. I think it's people busting each other's faces open with elbows inside a cage isn't going to be for everybody. You're telling me that fighting's not in our DNA? I thought if there was a fight on a street corner, everybody ran toward it. Now, some people call the cops. I thought we were going to be bigger than soccer. Well, some people just, you know, get concerned about Ta- the breakdown of society. Who was that wealthy industrialist that wanted to buy this podcast again? H.P. Lauderman III. Send me his email. Uh, I think that there is something to the, especially in MMA, and we talked about it before as uh, one of the difficulties of the heavyweight division, is that if you're not following it super closely week to week, you can get a little confused at the ups and the downs. Yeah, because that's can, only gotten worse over the last almost 10 years. Right. Well, I mean, the, the problem though is like a dominant champion has drawbacks as well, as we've seen before when Anderson Silva did it, when Demetrius Johnson did it. But it also seems like if you can't keep track of who has the belt now, it just seems like a game of hot potatoes, just passing it back and forth. Yeah. That, that makes it harder for people who aren't super plugged in to really be following it all. I, but I don't know. I think that is kind of just the nature of the sport to some extent. All right. This one's from Elizabeth Lambert. She writes, I was thinking about a little game I like to play, similar to MMA, quote, would you rather? Like, who is the last fighter you want representing you in a trial for a murder you didn't commit? <laughs> then parenthetically, she says, Mike Perry. Oh, yeah. Good and, choice. quote, who is the fighter you'd most likely ask to pick you up and take you to the airport for an important early flight? Parentheses, Anthony Smith. Oh, yeah. No, Anthony Smith is not going to let you down there. No, he's going to show up in his glasses and his button-up shirt, and he's going to be ready to go on he's, time. He's going to be there like a half hour earlier than you thought because he's just like, hey, I heard that TSA is backed up. Yeah. And yeah, you traffic don't on, miss. The, on the 12. Yeah. Uh, who would you want to give the best man speech at your wedding? Parenthetically, Derek Lewis, stuff like that. I would love <laughs> to hear your thoughts. Some other ideas. Now, these here's some questions for you, Ben. Who would you ask to watch your kids for a couple of hours in a pinch? Oh, man, that's tough. Well, again, I, I think of the, the last people. Mike Perry is on so many of these lists when I think of the last person I would want to ask to do something like that. But who is who would you who would you ask? Which MMA personality or fighter would you ask? Well, I don't know. I mean, undefeated dad Donald Cerrone is starting to sound pretty good. He, he you know, he's not going to let anything happen to the, my kids' hearing. Yeah, he's going to look after your your children's ears for yeah. sure. 
Can we say, like, what if I said John Anik? Does that count? <laughs> no. Because that seems nope. he's got a bunch of kids nope. of his own. He's obviously very responsible. Uh, you know who I'd say? Daniel Cormier. Yeah, there you go. The daddest man on the planet for yeah. a reason. Mm-hmm. Also a guy with a couple of kids of his own. Yeah. What if you went outside the box and you said somebody like Joseph Benavides? Somebody okay. who's probably going to, you know, be fun uncle type situation, but would probably take good care of him. Yeah. And based on what I know about Joseph Benavides, when my daughters do the thing that they want to do where they're going to change outfits three times in an hour, yeah. he's actually going to be into it and have some critiques and uh, advice for how they're assembling those outfits. Yeah. It wasn't too long ago that I had to tell my daughter, be like, look, when you start doing your own laundry, then you can change your clothes <laughs> as many times a day as you want. But up until that point... I'm going to have veto power. Let's tone it down. Next question. Who is the last fighter you would buy a used car from? Man, can I just keep saying Mike Perry? I'm going to say anyone previous to the year 2000. Any (laughs) quote unquote golden age MMA fighter. Beware. Mark Coleman rolls up in here and he's like, brother. Okay, I actually would buy a used car from, my, from Mark Coleman, but like that's just my own bias. Well, now I have to think about the- I wouldn't expect it to be a good car. Let's just put it that the way. The used Ronda Rousey car where it had a bunch of stuff <laughs> glued to the dashboard that they oh. made clear they were not going to take off. That I was, forgot about that. That was, some, that was an added bonus they gave you. Which fighter would you most want to prepare a meal for you? Tyron Woodley. You know he's going to put some spices on the chicken breast like he's going to blow Sage Northcutt's mind. Yeah. What else can Tyron Woodley do? I don't know. I mean, I think any MMA fighter you ask to prepare you a meal is probably you're going to get into something paleo. Like it's <laughs> no, probably no going to come in a series of Tupperware containers, right? Just considering what I see them eat, it seems like they prepped it a week ago and like they had it set out for the week. Or follow-up question before I answer this one, uh, has Derek Lewis picked up the card yet? Okay, there we go. Now we're Derek Lewis has that Popeye's it. card, that's an easy answer. Uh did you know Jessica Rose Clark is an avid an avid cook, an avid chef? I did not know it's that. It's one of her passions. So I'm going to go there. Just okay. using my insider knowledge there you go. to uh, to score myself a, a p- potentially good meal. <laughs> all right. Last question this week from Hermie Thistleweight. Huh. All right. Who I assume is uh, related to Benedict Cumberbatch. Or like uh, an associate of that wealthy industrialist that <laughs> wants to buy the podcast. Aside from the mega mega stars such as Connor and John Jones, who would be successful simply on the basis of their current standing – and which MMA fighter do you two elk fuckers think would make for the best WWE wrestler? I'm going to go with our boy Sage due to his Backstreet Boy look and Ben Folks-esque physique. Okay. Uh, give him a gimmick of a pretty boy born on the third base, given title shots and opportunities on the basis of white privilege, and I think you have a winner. What do you, Who do you think would have the best possible possibility for success in the WWE? Huh. That's a tough one. I guess I... Th- not super confident in my ability to spot what makes a good WWE wrestler. Well, just to make you feel better, I'm not sure WWE should be certain, should be all that confident in their ability. But I would think like somebody like Daniel Cormier or Chael Sonnen, like somebody who who can cut a promo on the mic and then get out there and back it up with their uh, with their actions. I think would probably be okay. They're both a little long in the tooth. Yeah, no, age would be a factor. And then you would also got to consider someone that's just flat out huge, like a Francis Ngannou type individual. Okay. Well, Francis Ngannou, though, would likely need some kind of fiery manager to talk him up, wouldn't he? Well, he could be like somebody's bodyguard. He could be introduced as okay. uh, as somebody's protector, which is the way they go a lot of the time. Or maybe Francis Ngannou with Chad Dundas in a, a three-piece suit. There we go. Now you're talking. Pointing at the biceps over and over again, look yelling the, into the TV Look at the screen. latissimus dorsi. <laughs> Cut me the check. I'll be there. 
All right, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We went through as many of your questions as we could. Uh, next week, there's not much going on unless some news breaks, correct? There's no UFC event next weekend. There's I don't a, Bel- know if there's Bellator, Bellator has something uh, going final on. final coming up, though, right? Okay. Is that- Fedor and Ryan Bader. I think that's Saturday night. We'll have to talk about that. Uh, if you if you have questions, send them into the podcast over at the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. If you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review over at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to the show. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. How excited are you for the book, club? I'm pretty excited. Yeah. I was just realizing when I was driving over here that, like, I got to get my thoughts together. Because I finished the book a while ago. Yeah, me too. And it's one of those things where, like, as I was going through it, I was like, oh, I should talk about this. And I was like, should I write that down? And it was like, no, I'll remember. And now you fast forward to now, and I'm like, I don't remember any of that stuff that I meant to talk about. Do you think we can get Tommy Lee Jones on, special guest star? I hope so. Okay. How much money we got in the, pa- the Patreon account? I don't know what his uh, appearance fee is, but we'll see if we can get the you know, pay him SAG minimum at the very least. Yeah. If it's 500 bucks, I think we can do it. I guess I got to watch the, the film also. It's been a while since I saw that. I want to.